Hello everyone and welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Vinny Potestivo. Vinny is an Emmy award-winning media advisor who grows personal brands and founder-led companies by scaling content distribution, brand visibility, and media reach. We reached out to Vinny to get his unique perspective on what it takes for founders to get media coverage and viewing the same question from the opposite direction, what does it take for journalists to make a living in today's environment? Why would journalists want to talk to, well, anyone? Hopefully, Vinny can help us find out. Hey, Vinny, welcome to The Other Web. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me, Alex. So I saw that you're a media advisor and you're actually an Emmy Award winner and you've worked with all these different celebrities. Can you tell me a bit about it? <laughs> Is there any truth in that bio there? Yeah, I'm blessed to know uh, people like Ashton Kutcher and even Jessica Simpson, the Osborne, Sharon Osborne, uh, Diddy, Puffy, Puff Daddy himself, you know, creators who went through MTV in the late 90s to get their brands seen by millions and millions of people. And I was a talent coordinator at MTV in the late 90s and was there at that time when those like top 1% creators, the top creative entrepreneurs, you know, had to go through television to get an audience. And I learned to collaborate and create and build with the best of them. So I was spoiled out of the gate. And uh, what I'm focused on doing now is spoiling y'all. <laughs> I'm making sure now that we can own our content, now that we don't have to pitch to a network, now that we can create content and, and we can own it and we can air it and it can be seen or heard by millions of people and we still retain ownership of it. This is, this is a major change. Uh, specifically in America for, for people selling media in America. In any other country, usually the creator retains a small portion of the IP and then they come back to America and they license the show. You know, Apprentice was a show that was created off of MTV, uh, off of MTV, off of uh, American soil and comes on and the ownership of that deal is different than if you sell it to a network here. Uh, Ashton Kutcher sold Punked to MTV. MTV owns Punked. You know, uh, MTV Nick Cannon sold Wild and Out, which is a, a big comedy show for about twenty years now, uh, to MTV. MTV owns that show. And what I'd like to do now is help business owners and independent creatives know how to steer them to create content successfully to make the impact that they want to make. And by the way, I love that you nodded the Emmy. So thank you very much. Um, I worked hard for her. Uh, I won her last year. Uh, so after 25 years, I finally became an Emmy award-winning uh, TV executive. And I want to point out that it was done from this office. I actually thought that I would win all my awards by being out in the field or all the big sets that I've been on. And um, long story short, I won my Emmy for two reasons. And I want to talk about them. And we'll talk about them maybe later on too. One is I never nominate i was never nominated so like if you're not nominated you can't win so i actually had to learn how to apply for the emmys which meant i had to work on a qualifying project so i will i want to talk to y'all more about how to find awards how to find projects how to find moments to tie those those two pieces together and, and why you'd want to do that and then the other part was i just needed to believe in myself and and believe that i was worthy of the award and that in winning that award I was really focused on my thank you speech because of all the people that I get to thank, you know, with that opportunity. And, and that helped me get the courage to go out there and get that award. That Emmy Award is in a, one of the rare awards that spans, you know, industries. Yes, people in TV understand what it is, but also people outside of the TV world 
understand the impact of that award. Winning an award like that, that's, that spans the economy, for me was tremendous because I want to be seen as a media expert. And that little lady does a better job at explaining my expertise than the 20 billion hours of the Osbournes or Housewives of New Jersey or Millionaire Matchmaker or, or Wild and Out, any uh, jackass, you know, any of the shows that I've been a part of um, could ever explain in, in a nutshell. And that's, the impo- that's just one of the things I learned from my time at MTV, from, from watching celebrities build their brands. You know, I noticed this. Every single year, there's this it's award. Now we're in it now. It's February, March. It's award season. Who who wore what? Who didn't go? Who didn't get nominated? We talk. There's so many shareable moments that come from these awards, and they happen every year. Like celebrities figured this out. It's not once in a lifetime to win an Emmy. It's once a year <laughs> you get a shot at it, and that was a really nice uh, real- realization moment when I realized that because that made me realize how much how 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 easier it is, how how much more accessible that Emmy award is, not for just people in television because I didn't technically win it by being at a big fancy network with a big fancy network title. I worked. I won that Emmy as an independent creator. And that's that's what makes that so rewarding. So, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> no problem. So you mentioned some very successful people that are known by billions, and I know quite a few very smart, talented people who are known by maybe a hundred people, and they're trying to be known by two hundred. So, what is the difference? What do the really successful creators do that us normies don't know yet? <laughs> uh, how about this? Maybe I'm going to grossly generalize now. Uh, maybe us normies uh, put a lot of focus on what our capabilities are or our achievements are, where I think a lot of celebrities don't. They just know that by showing up, by being present, by being in the conversation sometimes, that their their presence is enough, let alone all the other things, the emotional journey that they have to take us on with you know, the integrity of acting, all the layers that we can kind of put on it. Sometimes just showing up is, is winning. Um, something that celebrities do, I think, better than us is they allow people to celebrate them better like the actual word celebrate like for example if i were to go to giphy right now and look at the gifs stickers animated stickers that we're all making stories with most of those faces are famous celebrity faces i'm up there by the way if you go to giphy right now and you type in vinnie potestivo you'll see my face and a bunch of my stickers up there i realized how easy it was for any business owner any creator on this planet to get a free account on Giphy to have our stickers available to be used, to be celebrated, to creatively be inspiring in moments when people want to lean on us for our creativity. And it's it's little things like stickers in Giphy that lead to the celebrity mentality of this person is valuable, this person's presence is valuable, and their presence is valuable not just in my life, but in someone else's maybe I should share. And ultimately, I think that the, it's funny how you put this, them and the norm, us, us and them. <laughs> I think the difference is they realize that increased visibility does not lead to increased discoverability. Like to get discovered, you do not increase visibility. You have to increase your shareability. You have to create these moments, these 
you have to create merch, you have to create albums, movies, TV shows, appearances, conversations, podcasts. You have to create these things that allow people to share. So celebrities right now, again, I talked about award ceremony. We can share in their fashion sense. We can share in their achievements. We can share in the wins and the losses and the community wins and the community losses. And and just their presence, especially this year, just their presence is, is, is sheerly enough. And um, I think that sometimes we feel like we have to do something super normal, super abnormal, super ridiculously successful to be able to gain, you know, the notoriety of press. You'd be surprised at how easy it is. Actually, we can talk about that. Uh, is that cool? How easy it is to get press? Because that's like a people really are afraid, you know, how, how am I going to get press? I, I have a brand new podcast. I have a brand new business. I have a brand new product or a service. I haven't done anything. Maybe I just got out of college. Maybe I just got a divorce. Maybe everything's going right for me in life. And none of those bad things that happened for me to have something new. I can even generalize the question a little bit. I come from the world of tech where there are a lot of people, myself included, who are good at building stuff and really bad at getting eyeballs to stuff. Yeah. And so from our perspective, it's not just how do I get pressed, but how do I get anyone to see what I've done, essentially, yeah. is yeah. always a question that requires a lot of experimentations and kind of trial and error because I don't know what the system is. So maybe you can enlighten me. Yeah, you know how you know how to uh to, to for them to to get them to see, you know, what you're capable of, show them. And you have to use their words, their phrasing. So they have leads, they have quotas, they have a, a need for content that we know they have to publish. Um, the, one of the things that I was actually kind of um, uh, shook, to be honest about the simplicity of it, was in being able to follow a prompt. So the number one blank, who does blank? If I look at headlines, especially in business, whether it's e-magazines e or actually print materials, I see the world's number one blank does blank. This is headline. Whether we like it or not, <laughs> it is a headline that I see a lot. And that prompt to me signals that the platform knows that its readers find value in that prompt and that structure. So what most of us don't do is take that prompt, throw it into chat GPT or some other AI and say, hey, prompt, my name is Vinny Potestivo. I'm a discovery expert. I help people, I advise on media projects. Um, write me a prompt that would fit this you know, structure. The, the world's number one blank does blank. What, what would the world be interested to hear from me? I ask chat GPT, I ask AI that information for me. If I'm, if I'm not already self-aware of what I think those opportunities are as well. Um, being self-aware is obviously a, a stronger point to be coming from, but I lean on chat GPT for those, for, for information. I lean on AI for information and output outside of the box in a really safe way. And, and you'd be amazed at how easy and clear it becomes a newsworthy story. But here's the thing, you can't pitch yourself to press as a story. They don't want a story, they want a source. They want to know that you are who you say you are, you're doing what you say you're doing, and you will consistently be doing that because once they validate you, once they verify you are who you say you are, and they've, you know, truth check you and everything that you're actually contributing make marks up, they want to be able to work with you again and again. 
it's actually easier to work with confirmed sources than it is to have to build new sources for every single story, all, all these billions of stories that are being shared. You know, I think there's a power in being seen as the source, you know, an album is the source of the singles, you know, that are going to be, uh, the Bible is a source for books and stories and characters. There, there is an organizing principle, a source that, that allows a stage to be created and for these stories to be elevated. So pitch yourself as a source. This is, this is like tip number one, especially for independent business owners, people who might not be working with a publicist. I've never had a publicist working with me. I've been lucky to be in castings and in New York City to meet people through entertainment, but also I pitch these people the same way I'm showing you how to do it. The world's number one discovery expert shares the formula to being discovered. But that sounds like a story, but you're saying the pitching is to present yourself as a source. How do you make that transition? So so, I'll, so that, that's exactly in the intro. So the intro for me is uh, uh, three, three facts of what I've done. So uh, if it's someone that I don't know yet, I try to meet them on a platform where I have credibility and notoriety. So on Instagram, I'm verified, but I've got 13,000 followers. To me, that signifies I'm a real person. I'm an industry professional. Um, but if you're looking for the 500, you know, 1 million plus people, I'm not going to stand out, you know, in that sea of influencers. But on LinkedIn, I know I will be. On LinkedIn, I know that when you look at my content, the last few posts that I've had, you'll see the hundreds of comments and conversations that I'm having. You'll see that I have highly engaged and I'm pretty active on a platform and you'll see the following that I have and it's all sort of evident there. So for me, I try to meet people on LinkedIn because that's where I feel like I show up the best. I, I demonstrate to them that I have a history. So I'll say I've done uh during my time at mtv and, and i did it at the top of this podcast by the way during my time at mtv i worked with a couple of people that you know we know in common ashton kutcher ha happens to be one of them and he the things that he taught me you know in my industry were was my gosh i can't even think about all the things that he, that's a whole nother topic we'll talk about that now i talk about the current opportunity that i have I have this project that I'm looking to get, you know, out into the world. I, I actively sat down with someone, I have conversation and, and I'm looking to move this piece of content. And if this is successful, and this is the, this is like sort of the hook, I think. And, and if this is successful, I have two more interviews. I have two more opportunities. I have two more of these that I'm doing that I'd like to in, bring you in on, whether you want to give me a question or maybe you can shape some of, of how the answers or how some of the questions are going based on how your, your audience might feel about this content. But what I can do for me, for example, heck, uh, I leverage my access to the people without having to leverage access to the, my guests. So I say I'm sitting down with Mandy Moore next month. If you'd like to ask two or three questions, let me know what those would look like. I would love to work with you, you know, in the future. I'd love to have the support moving forward the same way that I'm asking you for the support now. So that's it. Three facts about me in the past, one opportunity that I have on the table now, and then two more opportunities in the future that I'm saying they're coming, they're, they're near, and I'm not, I'm not being vague about it. I'm being very as clear as I can be about these opportunities. I just don't want you to think that this one story is the only thing I'm working on. Cause that's, I know, I know how that feels 
being on the media side, hearing that pitch. I understand the importance of why you're pitching it and why you feel like this needs to be, you know, seen by millions, thousands, you know, billions. Uh, but it's going to take work on my side for it to get there. And that's where having clarity in your vision and, and I even call it pre-purposing instead of repurposing. But when you can pre-purpose your content, when you have purposeful relationships that you know are waiting to support you versus, you know, recording a podcast episode and, and then going to social media and trying to figure out what to put on and then trying to figure out hashtags that match that conversation and secret tagging, you know, putting people's names in and making it so small so you can't even like tap on it, but the system sees it, you know, the, all, all that strat all that living content strategy, um, which is exhausting in a hamster wheel. What I try to do is get people to live the life strategy that results in content more so than the content strategy that results in life. So you mentioned what this looks like to the journalists. And I'm really curious about that side of thing. You touched upon the quotas that they have to meet, the leads or the sources that they tend to, I don't want to say use, that they tend to work with to actually mm -hmm. acquire content, the work that they have to put in to actually put content out there. What does all of this look like? What does the hamster wheel feel like? And how can we help journalists yeah. do a better job, essentially? Yeah, some of it is the information we provide them. Um, I have a, a, a Google Doc, a dossier that I actually have pulled uh, the top press clippings that I'd like them to find, you know, about me that I've gotten, not just the most impactful ones with the most reach, but the ones that really give me a, a well-defined version of who, who I want to be. So I, I give them an info, a, a document with a ton of source files and information that prove that other public television or or um, uh, or digital um, or even local blogs you know have written about me um, to be really honest that's why I created I have a podcast.com I created I have a podcast.com to feature independent podcasters because we don't get featured our podcasts get talked about and in our and maybe we'll get be like one one of five people to you know always in these listicles you know that's that's not how you get discovered that's not increasing your visibility on Google listicles and, and that type of inclusion is not going to lead to the authority building that we're capable of building when we're building like targeted true content h1 header content about you that that's the stuff you know, I, I get excited about it but that's the stuff that the aggregators are helping us do that that's where you know Google Google it, by the way to answer your question it changes every month uh, two months ago, Google got rid of the play button that used to accompany podcast in search results. So if you search for something on Google, if there was a podcast about that topic, that episode would pop up and there'd be a little play button and they removed that play button. Uh, in the beginning of 2023, Google announced that it's going to be removing podcasts entirely from search results. So if you want to search for content on podcasts, you can go to podcast platforms like Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can search there for podcast information, but they're no longer going to give you um, podcasts as an answer to the uh, you know questions that you're looking for. And a lot of us started podcasts for search and for reach and for visibility. Th this is where being intentful and being being uh, uh, really lasered in on your on your on your media and your content strategy can really have an impact. Con writing one blog about your podcast episode, the what that 
what you can now do with that one blog, first off, blogs have an RSS. I know the audience knows this. Similar to podcasts have an RSS. It's the same thing, RSS, really simple syndication. So just remember that RSS means really simple syndication. It doesn't get easier than that. Um, what I did with my blog RSS is I went to news.google.com and I was able to see if my platform was a source on Google. It wasn't. So then I had to go to publishercenter.google.com, add my blog RSS, which now puts my, my blog RSS on an exchange for hundreds, if not thousands of creators who have blogs that are also looking for that type of content to pull it. And I now have the ability to, because, because of blog content, have the ability to scale a brand through podcasting and more so than through search engine results based on the topics that we're talking about. And we can get really specific about them too. And that's the, this, this is the benefit of aggregators, by the way, is being discovered at a point in time when someone is looking for you, discovery, I said this earlier, discovery is hard. It's not about visibility. People, if you want, <laughs> there's a lot of places we get visibility, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. It doesn't lead to discoverability. It's that shareable piece that makes it important. So when, when someone finds your blog about, uh, say your episode is about podcast marketing, and when they find your blog about podcast marketing, they have two options. They can read it, or they can share it, or you could do the hybrid, read it and share it, and you know all the world is better. To, to serve someone a piece of information when they're looking for it, this is the aha, this is like the, this is the big moment to be, to, for, I know you're searching for this topic. For me to show up as a result at a point in time when you're searching for this topic, I'm going to have a much larger impact in the results of what I'm looking for versus if I was trying to get your information, trying to get your attention, you know, on TikTok or on Instagram, trying to get you to break the scroll and the whole rigmarole of entertain what entertainment looks like, you know, on social media. So I want to try to get this back to the last question because we sort of veered into the system where Google discovers your content directly and there is no middleman. But I want to understand the incentives of the middleman anyway, right? Because oh, sure. most content still looks like a journalist writing about you as opposed to Google just discovering your blog. Right. Journalists typically gets more eyeballs. There are some exceptions, but not that many. So what does the journalist's world look like when he's looking at Vinny, he's looking at Alex, he's thinking who to write about, what to publish today, how do I make money and how do I not go bankrupt essentially? Yeah. Well, um, so I want to point out journalism is interesting in online culture right now. Uh, there are the pure journalists who work on news platforms and they are literally going out and they are not, not, not just creating the news, but like re reporting on it as well, accurately and detailed versus some of the, um, what's the word councils, the, the press councils that are out, you know, now online. So I see on LinkedIn a lot of people that look like they're on the cover of GQ or they're on the cover of uh, Entrepreneur or they're on the cover of any, any sort of magazine I can think of right now. Um, you can pay to play, you know, they're, 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 so the councils came out as a byproduct of, of these news brands leveraging their, the IP associated with the brand 
and the IP and, and the real estate associated with the .com. But what's happening is you're, you're able to now buy an article, favorable article um, about you, get it to ha have it live on what looks like and is a valid URL, which just is not indexed by the web and is not pushed out by the web, is not supposed to be, but also has the Forbes brand name on it as well. But Forbes Council. What you're talking about is true Forbes journalists. So I want to stay away from the pay to play sort of answer, because to be honest, that's murky. That that looks, you know, to me, <laughs> if this was asked before chat GPT, before December of 2022, I would answer it different. Now, uh, it looks like it, it's predatory and it's people who are looking for people who are looking for press versus the journalists who are tasked with looking for people who are worthy of being in the press. And for the record, I've been offered to be on one of the Forbes councils and I just looked at it and it looks like $2,500 to write my own blog on a different domain. Yeah, and that made no sense to me. But I am talking about real journalists who were yeah. still journalists five years ago, That's writing thing. about me or my company because it is interesting. So what I'm trying to understand is what is interesting to them? Yeah. So, oh, well, okay. First off, if you want to find out what's interesting to the journalists, the journalists are kind of the easiest people. Oh, this is fun. I just get my, I'm rolling up my sleeves on this one. It's really fun to find journalists, uh, what, what treats them because they often have tasks. They often are assigned to certain desks. They also have often have topics. And a lot of those topics are annualized. Most of the public news cycle is annualized. Uh, no one's surprised that we're talking about awards at the end of February soon it's going to be you know march madness then it's going to be spring then it's going to be end of school then it's going to be summertime you know so then and the news knows these cycles the news knows these cycles because those are the same cycles they're selling to advertisers and don't forget like advertisers created the byproduct of television they said we have things to sell we need stuff for people to watch so we can sell stuff <laughs> basically journalists that are working with and this is a Oh man, that would, I'm, I got so many things in my head right now because what's going on right now with Fox News and the journalists that reported, knowingly reported on uh, some of the American election results. And, and this is actually, a, 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 it's a really interesting time in journalism. It's an interesting time in journalism because up until I would say the 80s or 90s, journalism was strictly about news. The journalist, the reporter was not to be part of the news. Uh, MTV News, as far as I know, MTV News is where I first started seeing the ethnicity, the sex, the gender, the sexuality of the journalist or the person reporting actually start to take shape and become part of the story itself. I think now we're at this stage where where journalists, and this is a tough question, this is a, tough, this is a loaded question, where journalists are hit, being hit hard with platform priorities. Those platform priorities are dictated by, by the advertisers. So, if you want to know what who, who to write, you know, um, uh, your article. One th one of the things I would do is start looking at who who's acknowledged your industry, who's written about your industry. Again, chances are they have written about it subsequent times, not just once. You're looking for people who have re repeat offenses. You know, people who are really experts who are coming at this again and again. Um, and what I do is in the follow-up, maybe, maybe the, the specialties in the follow-up, I never follow up and ask for an update or if they have an opportunity for me, I'm, I'm leading that conversation with an update. 
I'm part of this, we're doing, I'm, which is going to XYZ, or um, I'm, uh, I've seen, I saw something got announced and I wanted to see how that might, you know, impact you. Like I'm trying to add to the conversation, not just poke <laughs> and say, what about me? What about me? Which a lot of people just stay on topic. They do. Um, and, and following up, I hate to say this, but like part of the art and, and press simply is just following up. Most likely we're going to ignore the first re request. Most likely. Why? I don't know you. It's, I don't know if you're serious. I don't know where you are in the world and what time you're sending this email to me, you know, or if it's, if, if you found my name on a list, you know, I just want to make sure that before I start jumping through hoops, this is like really, this really matters to you. I'll actually wait for the follow-up. And I know that now. So when I pitch talent or when I pitch shows, I follow up the next day. I no longer, I used to wait a week and give them space. I'm like, hey, I just want to, you know, follow up on that. Let me know if there's anything else, a PDF or anything you need from me, a video to support what I can, you know, give you here. But I've, I've got assets. So, so I don't overwhelm you. Let me know what you'd like me to send you. But I have, you know, promo assets that I can, I can send you over. I would send that a day after as opposed to a week. Maybe four years ago, I would have waited a week, you know, before the pandemic, before the crush of internal communications and the the, the destructure of how sort of inter, in, internal communications at large networks or large platforms used to work. Um, because now a lot lands on the person and it's the people, it's the people, it's the, it's the actual reporters that are jumping from platform to platform and I would follow them. And that's the benefit of when someone leaves one place and the next is like, now you've got an opening at a place where you know, you have track record and you also get to, you know, travel there with, but it's in following their journey. And, 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 I said Google alerts. Um, I I have on Twitter. I have um, uh, editors and and writers and journalists whose accounts I have starred. If I've got them on my mind, because I start supporting and liking and energizing, you know, content around them in a way that I want I want them to see, you know, me in their results as well. Um, so it looks like that energy. So from their perspective, I keep trying to turn this around from what do you do as a talent to what do they do as essentially the go-between the guy who creates the content you mentioned that they insert themselves into the story a lot more than they used to and i'm guessing that's just a part of the culture that's not something yeah. driven by incentives in a way they are often driven by advertising cycles so i'm kind of curious how that affects different journalists and different sub industries right um and they move around a lot and they have their own brand now as opposed to just being the news guy for the new york times now it's a name and mm -hmm. that name sort of might carry over to a different outlet what else drives their day what pressures are they typically facing deadlines quotas that sort of thing yeah i bet that so they're if they're working at a large company there's probably a couple of departments that they've got to you know work with as well public responsibility you know there's a real responsibility to make sure the content that we're creating is go there's a real important to, to be aware that the content that we're creating is going to create a conversation and how that conversation is handled is important these platforms are responsible for starting conversations they, that's what they're trying to do by generating news by getting people to talk and share about this so public responsibility um what that looks like is meetings with lawyers and standards and understanding some of the um nonprofits or for-profits or some some of the beneficiary partnerships that we have in play that can strengthen certain topics 
uh, we talked about cycles because, you know, maybe there is need for more conversation around mental health around a certain, you know, month or day based on the press uh, coverage of those topics. And again, like uh, we go back and look at the social media calendars, the press, you know, the banana, banana of the day, dog of the year, sort of like the, these, these ideas that we laugh about um, where everything has a day, it seems like on social media, it's the same exact in news. And it hasn't changed, by the way, Amelia Earhart's birthday, the day that the Titanic went down, uh, I, I can go on and on about single days that we, you know, we annualize the strange, I just brought up the strangest topics. So public responsibility is one ratings is another. Um, at MTV, we had something called Walter. We all like to earn ratings. I bet ratings are a big part, especially now where you're looking at immediate read and then you're looking at the extended play. You're looking at, you know, after if, if you're a digital creator, or a digital publisher and you're, you're creating something, yeah, it might hit print and there's going to be a certain reach of print that day, but chances are it's also going to hit online and the dog tail, the length that that article is seen as relevant as, as you know, that matters. So a lot of conversations about ratings um, that turns into what makes an article last longer. What do we need to add at the end of an article to keep people more invested on the so that we can hook them into the next or what are we linking to in our article that will keep people's attention on our platform more so it looks like uh, a lot of a lot of unfortunately i say unfortunately because whenever any markets kind of got a downturn on numbers that's when those numbers that's when those those meetings pop up and when i was in tv man that was like a, 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 a it was supposed to be a weekly a weekly meeting, but it seemed like every other day we were like, where where are the eyeballs going? And then and then YouTube had them all. Little did we know. Um, a responsibility. So a fact checking. Uh, I've got to do first degree or second degree background checks on people often, especially anyone that I'm ever going to put on television or in any type of public medium. So uh, a first tier background check really means. Um, is your business in good standing? Do you have any current prior, do you have any current um, convictions or I don't want to go into the whole description of it all. Do you have anything within the last seven years, basically, that we need to be aware of? Second, second degree, you know, checks go back to 15 years and go a little bit deeper that way. But fact checking, you know, usually there's a department for fact checking, but verifying we are who we are. There's a uh, a system called LexisNexis. Um, uh, uh, lawyers, real estate executives, and like TV people have access to. And you you need a membership, and it's it's not an easy membership to get, and you need a valid reason to use it. But it allows us to see. By the way, it allows us to see all the data points. You know, you know how how all, how the government and these systems take all these data points. It knows me, and it knows my birthday, and it knows my college that I went to because of my birthday, but it also knows my car that I you know, bought and it also knows my house. So now there's a centralized system where I can pop in anyone's name or business. I can do a search for you. I can see the last few homes you purchased if I'm looking for contact information on you. I know LexisNexis, is, we use that a lot for contact information because it's it's got really deep info. It's got information from platforms you don't think 
are reporting your information back at you. So if you want to know, how does it know my age? You put it in somewhere and confirmed it. And, you know, uh, uh, and age is, a tr you know, I bring, I bring up age. I come from media, so I'm hyper aware and sensitive to ageism and I'm very aware of what knowing someone's age can do. Uh, in this world of data, knowing someone's age is, is that's like diamonds compared to gold. And, and when you sign into Amazon and you tell them your birthday, just because you're an actor and you don't want your birthday to show up on IMDB, which is an Amazon owned entity, you're giving, you know, you're, you're basically saying, here's my information, but I don't want this website to know it. But Amazon is without doubt going to put it on IMDB. There have been annualized cases about how sensitive this information is. And ultimately Amazon stance and, and the courts rule in favor is it's public information that was reported. And it's a, it's actually a disservice if they were to take it down, because who are they to start figuring out what what information should or shouldn't be edited if it's information and it's verified then we have the right to you know to to use to utilize it is sort of their where they're at so so information get gathering information confirming uh probably to be really honest i think we still do google image search this is a, a funny one but I, I worked in casting so i would have people pretend to be you know a housewife or pretend to be you know something because they want to be in on the process and they would send a picture and soon after the process we learned to start looking at everyone's images through google image search to make sure that there this wasn't someone that could be you know being catfished or duplicated so a lot of that all of that energy that's pretty protective energy you know that's pretty defensive energy that i just described there that's not so much on the no part of that was offense no part of that was the part I should have focused on, which is like, where, where are they getting their leads? Where are the sources that they trust when someone says this is a story, that they know that this is a story? Because now you understand all the things they have to do to keep their job without getting fired. But, but how do they get promoted? How do they get to the next big story? It's the sources that matter the most. So it's defending the pieces around you so that you know you're working in truth or absolute truth to the best that you can be. And then knowing that when a source comes in, you're primed and ready to move as quickly as possible. And uh, that's, I think that's the benefit in being a source seen more so than just one character and one story in this one moment in time. And I think that that's why in setting up, you know, I've been here, I've been here a while. I can't believe it's taken me years to meet you. I hope that we have as many years ahead of us, you know, now that we're connected, here's what I'm working on now. I'd love for you to be a part of it. And if not, I have two other opportunities coming up that I thought might be right for you. Um, let me know, let me know when we can hop on a call. I never even say, what do you think about that? I don't, I don't want their opinion. I wanna, let me know when you can hop on a call. You know, that's not a yes or no question. I didn't say, would you like to hop on a call? Let me know when you can hop on a call. By the way, in TV, in selling a TV show, I know I'm, I know I'm jumping on topic, so I'll, I'll stop right here. But in selling a TV show in the pitch room, the la you never say, would you like to buy my show? That doesn't come up. There's no question mark. It's always, we're going to make this show. It's going to be great. These are the words. This is the, the, the vocabulary. This is the, the characters who are going to get us there. You know, we're going to make this great show. Yeah, it's funny you made the distinction between offensive and defensive in my mind i'm immediately making a second distinction which is that yeah. everything you described so far is entirely supply side driven right at no point did we get a question about 
what do our readers actually want to consume? Oh yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that was completely absent from the conversation. Well, that's a, that's hidden in that Walter that's hidden in the Walter meetings. That's where that would, that's where that would come up. Yeah. You know what? I bet, um, uh, for my experience in TV, that type of conversation comes quarterly. We get, we get, you know, and there's, there's constantly happening. I wish, I wish that would happen, you know, actually, no, I'm happy that it comes quarterly because you have to have time to make move to actually move on it. And, uh, and in media and in journalism, the, the goal post moves too much, you know, because of time. So when you can really be landlocked and finite about, you know, a story, this is why I, I, I actually am recommending to people as they're like, should I, should I be in podcasting or should I not? I'm recommending people create like a finite series in podcasting. You don't need to be a weekly, monthly, live every single day to have, it's an audio platform. So have an audio project. If Nicole Kidman can do six episodes of a mini series and win awards, then why can't we, you know, there's this whole like them and us, the mentality. Like I really look at what they get away with and, and what we get, you know, we, we say, uh, Oh, it's a video podcast. No, it's just a poorly shot video. <laughs> like looking at a microphone and two people behind a microphone. That's not a video podcast. Let's, let's amp that up and energize that, that around there. I, I like that. I want to end on a futuristic note. You mentioned chat GPT a few times. So clearly you're on the cutting edge of how tech is being used in this space. Where do you see this entire ecosystem going now that content creation is becoming I'd say a lot less time consuming if you can oh, supplement yeah. with robots. Yeah, but you don't understand. I, I, it supplemented with robots as soon as we got these smartphones. I mean, in 2007, for me, I got millions of qualified creative colleagues because of technology, because they suddenly had the ability now to not only just have a platform for themselves, but to record it. So, so how TV has been created, has how, how it's been like, how media, how video and audio has been created has changed tremendously. I still think that the sources reign supreme. I think that, you know, the networks have the TV shows, the, the, you know, the shelves have the books and the, I think the source is still more important than ever. Um, the future, you know, if we're in the creator economy now, like I came from the real people economy in the, in the, in the early 2000s, if we're in the creator economy now, I think, uh, I think our next economy is going to be the community economy. I think it's going to be a real value-driven conversation around our ability to connect with large groups of people as opposed to being a large brand that can connect on smaller platforms and social platforms and shared space you know, of, of, of media. Um, a lot of that's going to change based on how we connect with content. You know, I grew up wanting the TV guide or the Sunday paper. So I knew it was on TV that week. The newspaper was my source. After the newspaper stopped being my source, I started to rely on technology for the like, day to day. If I would have just relied on that TV newspaper, I'd have one simple source and I wouldn't have to bop around all week long looking for all the things that I'm missing or not. So what I'm trying to get to is I think the curation is a big part of the future of content where we're connecting where we're seeing our content from, who we're seeing it from. I think it's going to come more from our peers than established publicly traded media platforms. Or, or to be honest, I think we'll see the shift of, of journalists. I, 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 even now, journalists and reporters are, it's a very spicy topic in TV because of, um, 
because of the goals of big business. I hate to say that, but that's, that's kind of how I really feel. Right. So you know that I'm in the content selection space, you could say as well. So I'm curious when you say that we are going to be more driven by community selection as opposed to relying on a big publicly traded yeah. company. What does that look like? Yeah. So uh, right now we have these podcasts and our podcast, we're, we're being asked our download numbers. and we're, So think of a future where we have podcasts, right? Which is just our ability to take an audio product and connect it to our audience. So we'll have the ability through and possibly through RSS, you know, through through RSS. And I also want to point out in, in television, you know, we, when you're watching a, a national news show uh here you watch a national news show in new york i know that i'm getting the local news weather so i know within a 60 minute show they're targeting down based on my demographics i think the future of content really stems from our access to community so it's a little hard for me to explain now because we're not there yet and i don't i don't think it's been created what i quite see happening but but our ability as a as an audience to control what's in front of us instead of what's in front of us to control who the audience is if that makes sense that's a very optimistic note i have my <laughs> doubts about that level of control in the hands of the audience but i hope you are right well i mean I also ugh, good luck with the audience that gets what they want because i'll tell you something about audience they never <laughs> they never know what they they know what they don't want but they hardly ever know what they do want <laughs> I remember the guy that designed the retweet button for Twitter in 2009, at some point said in an interview, we just gave a bunch of four-year-olds a loaded gun. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, pretty true. Yeah. Well, they knew it too then, huh? They knew that then. Yeah. Yikes. As I mentioned, I hope you're right. And <laughs> on that optimistic note, yeah, yeah. I want I to thank that. you so much for joining us. It was a great episode and I uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> This has been another episode of The Other Web. Join us next time for more discussions about media, journalism, and the future of information.